From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Uzo Aduba. She stars in Hulu's Mrs. America as Shirley Chisholm, the first Black woman elected to the U.S. Congress who made a historic run for the presidency in 1972. How does she define herself? And how has the world tried to define her? Because what's clear to me is those are not the same thing. Because a Black woman of that time who is living by the world's definition does not then run for president. And so she does not view herself the way that the world has tried to shape her. That became the root of the story that I was interested in telling. Uzo takes me back to the first time she put on one of those recognizable Shirley Chisholm wigs. She also opens up about why she thought an opportunity like this would never come again after Orange is the New Black and what it's like to work with an all-female ensemble on set and behind the camera in television. I recorded this conversation with Uzo last month. Let's get started. Uzo, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am doing okay. Yeah. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. Just trying to keep the mental health in check. I know. Ooh, tell me about the dog. This is my dog, Fenway Bark. Mr. Fenway (laughs) Bark is his name, actually. Apropos. And he is an Airedale Terrier. He's four. Um, Oh, my goodness. He's really showing up. (laughs) And this is my first dog ever, you guys. Let me put him upstairs because he's like, he really wants to be present. Come on, Google. No worries. Come on. Okay, now for real, for real, we're starting. (laughs) Does it help to have a dog during this time? I would imagine it's very calming and comforting. Oh, it's the best. He's, I mean, let not his performance just now fool you. He's such a good dog. (laughs) He's a really good dog. It is very comforting. It's funny because, like, I would walk him in the morning normally before. And it's like something I thought of like as being for him. And it really has become a thing that is like for us and like for me as well, like getting that like gentle start into the day. Yeah. Are you in New York? Yeah, I'm in New York. Like what's your typical day like? My day is I wake up, take the dog out. Now I've like started going either for a run or a bike ride just to get some air. I will cook. (laughs) A lot of cooking happened over here. It's been interesting because I used to journal all of the time and then life got so busy that that pretty much like died down, if not even like went away entirely in certain seasons, definitely, you know? And that is something that has come back, which has been really nice. Because when I say journal, I mean, I literally used to wake up every morning and every, before I went to bed. It's funny you say this about the journaling, because I wanted to do that. And then I was just like, I was having this conversation with my niece, who's 10, because I was like, do you think we should you know, maybe jot down how we're feeling each day. And because, you know, she was having a hard time with what was going on. 
I don't know like how other people journal, but I do write about how I'm feeling typically, you know, good and bad. Like I'll write about the great stuff. I'll write about the hard stuff. To be honest, there's been some, what I have noticed for myself has been a real appreciation for the slowdown. And I know that that probably sounds selfish. In the beginning, I was pack, 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 packed. And I thought that's what it needed to be. But you know what? Life has also been packed. But trying to just find like a little bit of the silver lining, whatever you want to call it, in that like I do actually right now have the time that I didn't have before to talk to a lot of my really great girlfriends, to talk to cast members who are friends of mine who like we normally would do like a quick little kiki and hang out that I haven't been able to. My family getting to like connect and talk with them so regularly. Um, I have a real appreciation for that and for this time, the speed of it, you know, sort of take just taking stock of that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a TV podcast, so I'm curious what TV shows are you watching in this time? Well, there's the obvious Tiger King, which we all saw back in 1902 when this began. Um, I watched, I watched that like early days. Um, I watched Pandemic, of course, because I was like, <gasps> with like a clutched hand to around my pearls. I watched The Last Dance. I watched Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, I just watched the other day, which was like terrifying. I just watched um, Jeffrey Dahmer, Mind of a Monster. Oh my God. Terrifying. What else? I just watched that the other day. What else? Oh, Michelle Obama's Becoming, I Am Becoming on Netflix. Oh, Hillary. Watched that one. That's a good mix. I watched, um, I watched Unorthodox. Yes, I watched that. Excellent. And I watched Mrs. America. (laughs) (laughs) Good segue. (laughs) So let's talk about Mrs. America. I mean, you got the call about this show as you were finishing up the seventh and final season of Orange is the New Black. Did, Did you ever think you'd get the opportunity to be part of another politically-minded series with a robust female ensemble and women behind the camera. Like, how was it to go from that to this? No, it was a simple answer. I did not think that. (laughs) Like, I distinctly remember as we were getting close to Orange wrapping or, like, deeper into the season, I remember saying to myself at one point, like, Uza, really, really take this in and take stock of this because it's probably never going to happen again. Not that I didn't think I would ever work with women again. I thought it would be like, I might work with a bunch of women, but we're going to be talking about, like, dresses. And, like, or I might work with, like, a bunch of women, but there may not be a bunch of women behind the camera. I might, I might work with a bunch of women and have a bunch of women behind the camera, but the story may not have something to set. You know what I mean? I thought, like, this thing will probably never happen again. It's unlikely for it to happen again. And then I got the call for this, and it was like, oh, this is going to happen again. Like, okay. So, like, that just felt, like, exciting, and I felt um, grateful. I felt 
just really, really excited that yet again, another group of people were interested in telling these types of stories about women that were strong and real and rooted in something and just have something to say. Um, and that the powers that be that lay behind the camera, they were also equally strong, captivating, smart women. Well, in Mrs. America, you portray Shirley Chisholm, the first Black woman elected to the U.S. Congress and the first Black woman to run for the Democratic nomination for president. How much did you know about Shirley before this series? I knew a little bit about her. Like, my mom was a big Shirley chisholm or Like, when I told her I got this job, she was like, my fighting Shirley Chisholm. You know, like, my fighting Chisholm. I was like, yes. Which I didn't realize was a slogan of hers. And so I, like, knew the name from that space. And then when I had first moved to New York, I had read a book called The African-American Century. She was in the book and had a section in the book, I remember. And that was the first time... I had learned at any length about who she was, what she had done as the first Black woman elected into Congress, the first Black person and first Black woman to ever, and woman to ever run for the presidency. And I just remember thinking, whoa, wow, that's crazy. What a, what a huge tower of a woman. And then when we started And on this project, that was really when I got to know more of the inner workings of her story. I was reading a lot of her speeches, and there was always this really consistent theme about possibility. A lot of what she talks about is the possibility of a life. I just thought that was very powerful, that she was speaking those those truths and ideas into existence at that time because she wasn't doing it for symbolism. She was actually, you know, staking a place, taking a real stake into this election. And it just really sort of, I think, helped to illustrate how powerful, how powerful a woman she was, that she was speaking about things like that while standing right in the shadows of the civil rights Uh, movement, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, you know, has just only happened four years prior. You know, there's just some pretty major things that are historical events that are occurring while she is doing this pretty remarkable thing. Well, to sort of get more into that, I mean, there's, I believe it's the third episode of the season that focuses in on Shirley. And the episode really grapples with like intersectional feminism and its place in U.S. politics. You see her when she goes on stage to celebrate McGovern's nomination. You feel this greatness for how far she's come, like in the people like cheering her on and her being up on that stage. But like you say, you also get the sense of sort of exhaustion or being weighed down by this idea of serving as a symbol and all that that sort of carries. She very much stood like as a precursor to what we're seeing now, like how did reflecting back on her experience enhance your outlook of what we're seeing today? Like even in this 2020 election cycle, you know, as female candidates and candidates of color have had to drop out because of like not getting enough 
support to continue. Right. I mean, I think, again, sort of going back to this idea of possibility, I think it's exciting to know and powerful to know what she was what she was able to accomplish at that time and really tells you all you need to know about the type of woman she was. She's not born into a post-equal, quote-unquote, equal America. She is part of that earlier division who had her rights infringed upon, right? So what it really becomes is an examination of definition, which is what I was interested in telling in terms of story. How does she define herself versus how the world defines her? And by extension, how in this past election, how how we define individuals who sit outside the traditional idea of what a presidential candidate looks like, right? She did not live by the definitions that had been placed on and ideas of what she was capable of, nor did any of the candidates we've seen after her. She thought and saw differently for herself and believed differently for this country. And I think that is a powerful thing to witness. I think, you know, in watching episode three, you realize how faulty the structure was within the second wave feminist movement because we see that, you know, they had not accounted for the intersectional voice, any intersectional voice for that matter. And you see that in Shirley's support or lack thereof in the end when she is someone who should have been stood behind and and supported. But you saw that where she was in her life, and that's what I thought was really interesting, where she stood in her life She was far more progressive, actually, in her thinking because she saw her own possibility. Unfortunately, those women did not prioritize it anyway, let's say, with the same level of importance they had given to other issues on the the table. Presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today.
to me more about the research you did for this role. Because, you know, as a viewer, I've gone down the rabbit hole of Googling, reading, watching clips. So take me through your journey through the research for this part. I would say it started with two things for me. Her speeches on possibility. Well, I'll say actually the first thing was I watched the documentary Unbought and Unbossed. And for me, going through this, I was like watching her clips and I was watching all of these pieces and I said, okay, we can give essence to Shirley, but if we want to do Shirley, then why don't we just watch these documentaries, right? Why, don't we, why, would we, why are we tuning in to watch this? You know, we could just watch, like you just said, we can watch a bunch of YouTube clips about her, you know, and see it told there. But the thing that I really hooked into is if you've watched Unbought and Unbossed, there is, it's like the last maybe like 10 minutes of the film when she's releasing her delegates. And you see her collapse into her hands and she starts crying. And it is the polar opposite of everything I had ever, that and a dancing clip of her, of anything I had ever, interview, speech, whatever, I had ever seen of hers. I'd never seen, I realized, the woman who goes home after having had to confront the world all day as the only, whether that's the only in the Women's Caucus, whether that's the only in Congress, whether that's the only on the presidential trail. I'd never seen her, the woman who, without her wig on, I'd never seen Shirley Chisholm until that moment. I said, that's Shirley, that is her. That's a, a person disarmed. And I was interested in that woman. because So then that's where the question that I was saying comes from. Then it became to me, it's like, oh, she really, really was doing this. This wasn't a symbolic gesture. And she says that at one point. She's with a group of children and they're like, she's like, you're the, you're the first. She's like, I'm the first real candidate. It's not a, it's not a symbol that I'm, that, that I'm doing. Real, real first woman running for president. And I thought, wow, she really wanted to do this. And she really thought this was possible for her. And that's why she's always talking about possibility and the future and what can be done and belief and change. She's always talking about these things. I said, because she really thinks it's possible. And so then that started to work inside me, the question. I usually have a question that I want to try and answer. And that question that I said before, I would make, the question came for me like, how does she define herself and how has the world tried to define her? Because what's clear to me is those are not the same thing. They're not the same. Because a woman who's living, a black woman of that time who is living by the world's definition does not then run for president. And so she does not view herself the way that the world has tried to shape her that became the root of the story that I was interested in telling. Because then I sat back and I would say, I know what that feels like. I know that experience. I know what those shoes feel like. And now you have to try and climb to the highest office of the land. Wow. 
This woman is made of a very different metal, but she's still very human. And I was interested in that piece of her coming through. I definitely would say that you achieved that. And I I love that that's, that's the first place you sort of went with, right? Because I think with period pieces, even as viewers, we tend to get caught up in like the wardrobe and the hair and how that presents the character, which it does help. But to get at the roots of what she was feeling and what she was going through is just as important. But how did marrying that with the wardrobe and hair, like being suited up as her, how did that sort of feel for you that very first time you did it? You know, it's so interesting because I I remember the first time we had a camera test and I put on the wig and I said to myself, oh, this is what they mean when they say heavy is the head. One, because it's a huge wig. Two, but it's also two because it's like historically what we're talking about. Because she's not, she is not unaware of what she represents, right, out in the world. That she she is aware she is the first. And... For me now, the actor talking, I felt, oh, she had no choice but to put on something this powerful and strong and something that would take up space because we're talking about a woman of that time. We're talking about a Black woman of that time. And how much space was she really being given? So she now has to take up space. She's a tiny woman, so she has to hold be able to hold space. And so then it became like, oh, that's what this wig is about. That's what these clothes are about. They're about being seen, doing whatever in your power to be seen, but then also making sure that is matched with what you're saying. She had such a strong command of space, strong command of self, and knew that all the parts needed to be well aligned to go from being what some thought was that a person who should be invisible to being visible. Well, did portraying her make you feel a renewed sense of drive or confidence in taking up your own space? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Listen, you know, like sometimes I think we think about life and I'm not minimizing anybody's struggle or challenge, or not even my own. But seeing a woman that sure of who she was in the world at that time, it kind of makes you, (laughs) to borrow from this quarantine time TikTok, like hashtag level up, you know? Like it makes you want to like show up in life, you know? Like and occupy the space that you were given and meant to occupy. If I really am thinking about it, I think she reminded me of how fearless I actually am and that that's not a bad thing. One thing I noticed, at least as we reached the finale, which, you know, came came recently, was this, I mean, it's hard not to hear people talk about how emotional this series made them, particularly women. And, you know, it's sort of an understatement to say this series very much reflects present-day issues. Was it startling to you how much this didn't feel like ancient history? No, it wasn't startling to me. It was (laughs) probably more annoying than it was startling, no, but, like, more annoying that it's, like, 
<laughs> not to be like too like theatrical about it, but there is sort of this like Shakespeareanness to the series where it's like Romeo and Juliet, right? Like it starts with you being told how it ends that these got these people are going to fall in love and die, right? And yet somehow we're all surprised at the end when like they're dying. We're like, wait, what? Don't do it. And it's like they already told you he died. You know what I mean? Like they already told you this is going to happen. Why are you shocked? And it's like this has that feeling. You know, we already know where we are in the story of our culture wars, but surprised, no. Annoyed, yes. Well, I want to talk about being on that set with all these amazing women. Like, when did you feel like you could go up and shoot the breeze with Margot Martindale? Like, just talk to me about being on that set with these women. Oh, it was bomb. It was awesome. Just good-spirited women, strong women, which I love, um, smart women, which I love even more. It was just a good time, just a good time with everyone. One of the things I loved was you let your hair down, of course, and we have good hair down moments. But I think for me, I loved seeing all of these women who have worked on countless projects at this point. You know, this is my second big TV job since Orange. And I loved seeing that they still love it, you know, and that they still do the work. That's what I loved. That made me feel excited. That made me feel good because they all, they still love it. But what's it like in that hair and makeup trailer or like on the set? Like, give me a snapshot, like an anecdote that, that you think you'll like pass down when you think about this life that you've lived. Like, what stands out about being on that set? Musicals, musicals, musicals. We all love musical theater, which I did not know. Everybody would be, like, so into musical theater. Like, you could throw any Sondheim song out there, any song from My Fair Lady, any, anything. And everybody, you could be like, you could drive a person crazy, you could drive a person mad. And, like, Margot would be like, doo-doo, and then Teresa would be like, doo-doo. You know, like everybody would, like everybody loves musical theater. Now I want Mrs. America to be made into a musical. <laughs> Who's that? We need to make this happen. Oh my God. So funny. So so <laughs> I do want to talk about your time on Orange is the New Black. I will never forget interviewing Jenji Cohen, the creator, ahead of season one, and her being like, I don't know what this streaming world is. I don't know if this is going to work. What do you remember about those early days? Isn't that crazy? This is what, 2020? That was 2013. Jeez. It feels like we've always had streaming, and the truth is we haven't. And it feels like TV has always been this way, and the fact is it has not. Those early days, it's funny because my sister will sometimes remind me too. My sister Chi-Chi, it's like, how she's like, you used to talk about it and be like, I think it's a web series. <laughs> like, it's like, because there was no such thing. That's the part. It's like, when we first started Orange, there was no Netflix show on. So it just felt like, like a web series. I thought we were doing a web series. I was like, maybe it's going to be on YouTube. I'm not really sure, like, how it's going to work. 
Um, and it felt so new, so fresh, a little bit of like the wild, wild west, you know, in those early days too. Like you could just, like, it felt like everybody was just telling whatever story they felt like telling. And I thought that was pretty cool. Well, and like you said, now there's an abundance of streaming services. It's hard to remember a time we didn't have them. And the most recent addition is HBO Max. And I know you were slated to star in a drama for them opposite Lupita Nyong'o called Americana, which is based on the best-selling novel of the same name from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. What can you tell us about that project? Like, had you started production at all? We had not started production Um, But I can't wait to start. Obviously, you know, we're living in a fragile time with what coming together looks like. But that's such a remarkable story. Very, very, very close to my heart. And I love those women. They're all just such great girls, ladies. And um, yeah, I'm excited. Our last question comes from our previous guest. Brian Cox, who plays media mogul patriarch Logan Roy on Succession. How did she find getting work? How difficult was it for her? I mean, I guess I got my first job two months after I moved to New York, but it paid me exactly zero dollars and zero cents. (laughs) So I got a job, but I was still working my day job. Um, I think I found it... I think, you know, like, I think it was just like, to me anyway, it was any New York actors grind. But I was very determined, very hardworking. Let me say this. It's like, I think, I don't know how I knew this, but because I didn't come from like having like a bunch of artists in my life outside of college, you know, who were working professionally. But I did know it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be hard. And I remember my mom telling me to like, just work so hard. And I knew this was going to be the hardest thing I was going to have to do. So it was like, I waited tables and worked and did that for quite quite a few jobs that I was working, you know, like every New Yorker, you know, and I'm sure the same in L.A., you know, like working an acting gig, but you're still waiting and serving because it's not making end meet. But I, but I didn't care. I loved what I was, I loved every one of those projects. Um, well, we're now going to have you ask the question for our next guest if you don't mind. And that is Jean Smart from Watchmen. And it does not have to be about the show. It could just be an actor-to-actor question. Ooh. My question would be, Jean, why do you still do it? Ooh, I love that. Well, Uzo, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I hope your next dog walk is a joy. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Stay safe. Thank you. You too. That's it for the 19th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Jean Smart. You know, some of the gals were offering, you know, lap dances, and I thought, oh, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Okay. (laughs) If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. 
We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.